Welcome to the George Lynch Hunting Podcast, brought to you by Legendary Gear, the game call company that is legend by design. You can check them out at Legendary Gear USA. It's legendarygearusa.com. I'm your host, George Lynch. I'm also the custom tuner and designer for Legendary Gear. Our motto here is, if it's not good enough for George's lanyard, it's definitely not good enough for yours. Well, folks, we are excited this week's guest is... He's at the other end of the spectrum this time. Usually he's the one doing all the interviewing. I get to interview him today, but always known as uh, Outdoors Dan, but Dan Young. Welcome to our podcast, buddy. Well, good morning, George. How you doing, buddy? I am so good, I'd give $5 for a headache. <laughs> Amen to that. Amen. I tell you what, it was, it was interesting. Diane got to hear some new vocabulary uh, last week we were interviewing Philip Vanderpool, your good buddy, and she got to learn there were some new uh, new words in the some buck at some buck. I got that some buck and old sad daddy. She was learning some new vocabulary. <laughs> yeah, Philip's good for some uh, Philipisms, that's for sure. Philipism, I like that. Well, Dan, we're gonna yeah. introduce. I mean, pretty much people know what your what your platform is, and I mean. The radio, now we have the outdoor call radio, and now you have the outdoor Dan, and then doing the respect the game. So you have a, a lot on your plate, but uh, why don't you tell me how many years you've been doing this for the radio? Uh, the radio shows, George, uh, we're going on our 24th, 24th year uh, in St. Uh, started down in St. Louis, so um, this October. Uh, it'd be 24 years if I remember right. So I've been lucky. Uh, I've been pretty lucky to be on that for that long of a time every week uh, doing a hunting and fishing show. And it's uh, the whole ball game's changed too since the digital thing. I mean, the access to the social media. And I mean, back when I was starting hunting, we were the when the VHS came out, we thought that was a huge breakthrough watching in a, a hunting show. And today, everything's live from people's cell phone to I mean, everything's instant. And I know that you're part of the Respect the Game. How's that working? I mean, they're on the Sportsman's Channel. What is your part in that? Um, I'm just basically the the sweeper upper uh, (laughs) or the official watcher. So whenever they need footage of somebody going out watching deer and not shooting anything, that's where I come in. I I ought to get you tagged on that for me. (laughs) Those guys got it made then. No, they uh, they been, oh, yeah. they respect the game. How many seasons do they have? Do you know? Uh, this is going on eleven. Diane brought up a great in- interesting point when we were doing this, uh, getting ready for the show. She says, "You know what? Uh, everybody knows the outdoor Dan and the call radio, which, but she says, ask Dan to say, you know, tell something about himself that people might not know." So. Can you elaborate some things uh, about Dan Young that maybe our listeners may not know? Uh, I don't know. You know, George, I'm pretty open on the radio. I mean, I've been, you know, if something, if I mess up or if something happens, I usually talk about it. I think that's one of the reasons why I've been able to stay on for 20, almost 25 years is, you know, I always want, I always wanted the shows to be, you know, somewhat of, you know, you're sitting around the coffee table or, you know, having a beer with your buddy and, you know, just having a conversation, um, you never try to set myself up above anybody or say I'm better than anyone. And, you know, this is, you know, if I talk about tips or doing stuff, you know, it's always, uh, 
you know, hey, this is what's been working for me, and uh, I'm going to share this with you. And I'm not saying you have to do this, but, you know, this if you try it, it might work like it's doing for me. I, that's always been the premise. And then having the guests that I get on, uh, you know, like yourself or Larry McCoy or Philip Vanderpool or uh, T-Bone Turner or, you know, whoever, um, I let them be the pros. You know, even though I've been doing it professionally for a a quarter of a decade um, or a century or whatever it is. But uh, it's just, uh, you know, I'm just I'm just your average guy. I mean, I I was in the service for a while. I was a medic in the Navy and um, I bounced around. I couldn't find out what I really wanted to do, because when I got home, they wouldn't let you do half of what you did in the service. And I, you know, I finally, I knew I always loved radio and I just got a chance to get in at a really small station and I got in doing sales and I talked to the general manager to let me have a, an hour outdoor show on a Saturday or Sunday. It was one of the two, I think it was Sunday. And um, he goes, you get four or five sponsors, uh, I'll give you an hour. And I went out and I got four or five local sponsors and I've been doing it ever since. So that's, that's really, uh, you know, I'm just just a normal guy that likes to hunt and fish and try to pay my bills, take care of my kids and love my dog. I mean, that's, uh, that's about the, me in a nutshell right there. So we don't have to bring the cross dressing issue into, to, we won't talk about that then. No, I, you know, <laughs> you know, the, the, the cross dressing stuff doesn't happen until, uh, the rut, you know, you got to look sexy in the stand. I always say you want to be the sexiest thing in the woods. So that's, uh, we do that. We do that during the rut. There you go. Um, so you're not originally, where are you originally from? Are you originally from St. Louis? Originally from Washington, Missouri, which is about 45 minutes west of St. Louis. That's, that's where I grew up and, uh, moved up to Des Moines 21 years ago. Um, uh, they, uh, they started a sports station up here and one of the guys that I was on, uh, the radio, uh, on the big 550 KTRS in St. Louis with, his name was Larry Totler and Larry says, man, you need to come up to Des Moines. Your show will really take off up here. And um, they hired me over the phone. I bugged them and, you know, we had uh, talked and they uh, they made me an offer. And I came up here and um, took the brunt of family and been up here ever since. And it was really a good move because, um, you, know, you know, St. Louis is a great town and um, there's some really good people back home. But, you know, Iowa was more conducive to what I wanted to talk about, hunting and fishing. Um, Iowa's a great state for people outdoor recreating. And uh, it just, I, I, I just wouldn't have had the opportunities back in St. Louis that I had in Des Moines. I mean, I did Channel 8 News for, uh, I want to say six years, I was on Channel 8 News doing an outdoors dance segment. So, you know, that's where the TV show came from, Outdoors Traditions. Um, after I got done doing that, uh, I just, we did Outdoors Traditions TV for 20 years and, uh, the radio shows just took off. And then I started writing a column in the Des Moines Register every, every Sunday. And I, I mean, you're talking with a, a person that has a high school education and was a Navy medic in the Marine or with the Marines in it, uh, for four years. And I mean, I took some marketing classes, but to be able to be in the largest newspaper of the state beyond one of the top TV stations and, and to have their own TV and radio shows for so long. I, I, I give all the credit to the man upstairs because that should not all have happened. So you said you had a high school degree, so you had really no training in public speaking or in literature or English or anything like that in school. Does that some of the classes you took? I mean, to be a writer, um, I write, but it, it's Diane kind of re, redoes everything I write. <laughs> 
She says, when yeah. I... Well, you got to understand, George, me writing was sending in an article and having them edit it. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. When I write an article, I write... Diane says it looks like a Dr. Yeah. Seuss book when I write an article. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I write like I talk. It, it's all over the place. What are the biggest changes that you've seen come along um, through the... I mean, like we, we mentioned earlier, you know, I can remember my dad as a kid when he had the first video camera. We're like, wow, we've gone to the space age and, you know, the VHS to see where we started. You know, I hear Cuz Strickland and Mossy Oak talk about the stories of going out and, and videoing with the cameras that weighed 20 pounds a piece and, and doing the video from everything where they've gone in, in back in the 90s and early 2000s to where we're at. It's just made a huge change. What has that done in your career? Well, I mean, everything really, uh, I mean, technology-wise, um, you know, like the Outdoor Call radio platform that I started that you and Diane are on. You know, I, 25 years ago, that was never possible to have an, a 24-7 outdoor radio station. So, you know, technology finally caught up to where you got people, um, the podcasting side of the business has just taken off. I mean, there's thousands and thousands of podcasting people out there you know, we didn't have all that when I started. We were still doing terrestrial radio stations. You still had to have eight tracks. I mean, when we put commercials in, when I used to run the boards and play the play the uh, commercials during my show, I mean, I had to learn how to do all that. I had to learn how to edit. Uh, digital editing was just starting at that time. You think, you know, thank God I didn't have to splice and and run tape and everything like you did before then. But, I mean, we've went to the first uh, additions to digital digital editing to now where, you you know, if you want to talk about the outdoors or if you have something that you're passionate about and you want to try to get out there and communicate and see if you can start a business, you've got all these different platforms now that you can do that we, we didn't have back when I started 25 years ago. So, um, you know, I think that's one of the most exciting things. And, that, and that's where that's where the outdoor call radio came from. I wanted something, even though I'm still doing terrestrial radio, like on ESPN in Des Moines and the big 550 KTRS down in St. Louis every week, I wanted something that I could put together myself, own my own radio station, and then have people like yourself and, and Michael Lee from Backwoods Live, Fred Eichler, uh, Scott Lasa from Dead Meat, the sporting chef, um, uh, Hank Shaw, who's the James Beard award-winning outdoor chef, uh, he does a podcast called Hunter Angler Gardner Cook. Um, you got uh, the guys from River Certified, Bass Edge, Jason Mitchell Outdoors Television. Uh, my friends down in the East Coast uh, and Pennsylvania, the Keystone Experience. I mean, we got some really good uh, quality, uh, entertaining podcasts or shows that I can put up Monday through Sunday, plus do another live show myself. I, the, the beauty of that app, I can go live anytime I want. And, um, you know, I just didn't have that technology 20 years ago. So basically, I own my own radio station, even though it's a web-based app platform. I mean, we can do we can do contests. Like, we're giving away a shotgun right now, George. All these people have to do is listen in uh, during the Monday through Sunday. And when they hear the turkey gobble and the shotgun, Andrew, my producer, says, hey, this is the phrase that pays, or this is this week's JLM phrase. And if you drop me an email with that, you got a chance of winning a brand new turkey gun. I mean, I just I can do whatever I want with that platform, and those are changes I think that are really exciting uh, for me as a producer. Anyway, 
on, on the business side, and I think you've seen this, you know, you were a manufacturer, you owned your own business for a long, long time, and you, well, you guys just started again, but, you know, the industry has totally changed from when I started. I mean, you could go and have a, uh, make a phone call, get a hold of an owner or a marketing manager, have a 25, 30-minute conversation and do a handshake deal and start partnerships. Now, you've got all these huge companies absorbing all these smaller mom and pops, and the, a lot of the times the people doing the marketing don't even understand the outdoor side of the industry or the business. So, you know, you have a hard time trying to show a value to somebody that's making decisions. And that, that wasn't like that 25 years ago. So it's in a way it's a lot easier on the technical side for people to get started. But on the, on the flip side, it's harder to get partnerships or relationships built where you can monetarily survive uh, in this climate today. So those are the changes that I see, buddy. I have to agree with you. It's uh, that's been one of the tough things, like you said, the digital part of it's good. But in the day when we went and, and there was a lot of companies that I shook hands with and and we had a good relationship and like it, it just seems that the uh, the mindset, you know, our business was trying to create a great product and then customer service, and we took pride in that. And that, of course, it's kind of the reflection of the whole country. We've kind of lost our manufacturing and we kind of lost our pride. We, we don't have a problem with someone else doing it for us. And um, I guess that's a sign of the time. So I, like you're saying, it um, it definitely is a different time today. And trying to, it is frustrating, um, you know, kind of when you have a, a picture and, and you have a vision of where you, you know, where you started years ago and where we should be today and what's important. Those values don't seem to be the same. What's tough for me is, you know, you've got years of experience and then you can watch someone on social media who's uh, just got a portion of experience, but good, uh, they call following. They, they have, uh, those seem to be the, the picks of the companies today with their social media status. And I guess that's something that's hard for me today because I'm, like I said, still old school like you and you're looking at hunting talent. But uh, today there's a different type of talent that gets to the top of the food chain. But... And all your hunting, Dan, of, you know, you, one of the things that you mentioned that I would say is a big difference is I don't think back in the earlier days there was too much self-filming. For me, it'd be a disaster to self-film. I've tried it a couple times, and <laughs> I, it's a disaster. My wife can contest that I, I'm a disaster trying to film her. But you are very, I mean, you pretty much probably 90%, 99% of the time, do your own filming yourself, right? Yeah, uh, on whitetails, it's just, you know, Larry, uh, um, you know, one of the things that was coming over to respect the game, um, it was really nice because I could be part of a national show. Um, I mean, you know, my Outdoors Tradition TV was on 20 years, but we were a regional show. We were on Fox Sports Midwest and Fox 17, and then, we uh, did the hunt channel, but, you know, we were hitting 90, 95,000 homes a week, but going from that to hitting over, you know, several million, you know, folks a year on the national platform. Um, that's been really, you know, really exciting for me to get the, you know, get to be introduced to a whole new uh, group of people, but yeah, I'm still doing the self filming stuff. And, you know, um, that's, that's the hardest thing when you're bow hunting and you're trying to get good quality content, you got to be the camera person first and then, you know, then the hunter second. And it's cost me a lot of animals over the years, but when it all comes together, George, um, it's pretty special. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting tired of lugging all that stuff around though, to be honest with you. I'm getting old and 
I'm getting the old grumpy old man grouchy syndrome. So. <laughs> and it is a lot. To, so, it is a lot to carry. Oh, it yeah. It you know you got your camera arm, you got your camera, you got your pack, your bow. Um, you know you got to bring extra batteries. You know make sure make sure you have a secondary camera for second angles and. Yeah, it'd be it'd be so nice just to grab your bow and run up the tree, you know. It's just, uh, but you know, it's an it's a trade off, you know. I'm I'm getting to do what I love and have a passion for, and you know, I had so many people when I first started tell me I would never make it, and I didn't have what it took to be a, an outdoor radio uh, communicator, or uh, I wasn't good enough to be a, a radio personality, and you know, um, so you know, 25 years later, I, I, it's worth the it's worth the the sweat and toil of, you know, keep, keep grinding. I did buy an e-bike this year, so I'll be able to throw that in the cart and that'll be less that I can ride that. I can ride that right to the tree. So that'll help me a little bit there. That's interesting. Let me know how you like it. I, I've, uh, it'd be priceless down here where we're at. I could hide, you know, it's easier to hide your bike from your wife than your truck where you're hunting. Yeah. I, 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 I like them just for the simple fact they're quiet. I mean, you know, with my Polaris, you know, I've got to park several hundred yards away because they'll, you know, they hear that flare is coming. And, you know, I know, I know folks go to outfitters and stuff where the, the outfitter a lot of times will drive you right to the tree and then take off. But, you know, if you can't climb up the tree and, you know, and resend the Polaris away, but, you know, it's just less gas, less noise, less movement. You're, you know, you're not letting everything know you're there. I mean, you, um, them deer just don't know what to make of those e-bikes. You can drive right by them, and they just look at you in the bean field. It's pretty crazy. We found that out here with our horses. You 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 filmed the which is the toughest filming the whitetail or filming turkey, or it's pretty much the same. Uh, well, turkeys are easy. Uh, they're not. I mean, nothing's really easy, but they're a lot easier because you've got your decoy up, and you know you've got a target there for them to go to. So you know you, you know you just have to get your openings, your pan shots, and then when they come in, just get footage of them coming in, jumping and beating up the decoy, and then you know make sure your camera everything's framed up with the way you want it, and then you know, then you can go ahead and dump your bird. But uh, the whitetails is definitely the challenge, it, especially during the rut. It's just, you know, you never know where they're coming in from or what's going to happen. And um, now I do try to decoy a lot of bucks and uh, Halloween week on, I do try to use a decoy. And um, I've gotten some really good footage doing that over the years. But uh, yeah, the, the whitetails are the booger for me, you know, just trying to get everything good, you know, good quality content and make sure everything's done right. You know, um, I've used a decoy myself, and, and I've uh, used several different types, but the last I've been using uh, Dave's Smith's uh, buck decoy. And, oh, yeah. And you know what? I've, yeah. I've hunted from all over, used and trying, and got different results. Um, areas where they say the heavy hunting pressure, you know, they don't work. Well, I had pretty good success in Michigan, but I look back, and I think it was because it was a younger age structure deer, they weren't quite as mature. They came into it, acted a little goofier or aggressive to it. But I really never had what I called a super negative effect. And until a couple years ago, I had Diane hunting with me out there in one of the spots that we hunt in Garden Grove. And it was, it's a great farm and a lot of deer. And we, this was, uh, stuff was starting to happen. They were starting to break up. They were still in a little bit of like a, a bachelor groups, but they were breaking up a little bit. And uh, I had a biologist who uh, sent me some uh, uh, new buck urine. It was buck urine, some type of a cover scent. 
that he designed. And I met him up there at the Deer Spectacular one year. He was next to us. I don't know if you remember, but he had the stinky booth next to us. And he sent me this bottle. And he says, you put it on your decoy in this time of year. And we sprayed that uh, buck decoy down. And her and I watched, um, I bet you at least a dozen bucks that came to the edge of the field and just stood inside the woods and stared at that decoy. There was a couple does that came out and walked in and all of a sudden um, they got within a certain feet of it and caught wind of it and just busted away. And there were some good bucks that, that hung out there and it definitely, it killed us. And it had to be, you know, whatever cover scent that guy came, you know, came up, it was definitely, I told him back, I said, dude, you need to bury this stuff and, and burn it this this isn't any good. Um, are you pretty particular in what scent you use and when you're doing your, do you have a ritual that you have when you're using your decoy? Yeah. When I take my day scent out, uh, you know, I'll put it out. And then I, uh, I use, I like pure whitetail. I don't know if you know the, uh, Josh and Grant and stuff, but Larry, Larry taught me, uh, you know, Larry's had, Larry and Philip both have had really good success decoying over the years. So Larry uses, uh, pure whitetail's bachelor group dust. Um, it's a powder form, uh, urine. And then you put that, we put that inside the body cavity of the, you know how your D, your buck decoy has a hole, yeah. you know, that you can put to the store, the antlers and stuff. Well, if you look on the inside of my decoy during hunting season, it looks like a bag of Skittles because that, that pure whitetail dust is, it's colored. It's got, you know, it's either pink or red or, or blue. Um, I'll use, uh, I'll use that, uh, bachelor group or premium duck bust and uh, I'll put that in there and then I'll take what they, uh, they've got a doe premium doe estrus called white lightning. And then I'll put that about four feet behind the dove, the buck. I'll put that all over the ground. And then I, um, I don't, are you familiar with Winston, uh, part of Fourth Arrow? No. Winston, uh, is a company that Fourth Arrow owns that they make these vapor, you know, you know what a vapor, uh, vapor pen is, you know, people use them to smoke cigarettes yep. and stuff. It's a thing. It's the same premise. It's it's a vaporing it's a vapor unit that takes a, a deer scent um, and you screw it in there and it turns it into vapor. It heats it up and discharges the vapor smoke, and that gets up into the wind column and dissipates up in the air and it stay it stays in the wind in the wind column way longer uh, than trying to just uh, you know put some stuff out on a cotton ball or something like that that like we used to. Remember how we used to take thirty five millimeter uh, film canisters, put them in. Absolutely. Fill them with cotton balls and, and we put our deer lure in that. Yeah. Well, it, it, you know that worked, but this works like five times better because it just every it, you can set it up to go off every two minutes or every three minutes, and you gotta you have a continuous amount of scent being dispersed. So I usually put that in a bush or something, or or put it behind some corn stalks within five yards of my buck decoy. And, and George, I've had does walk right up to it, sniff it, and then start feeding right next to it. And I've had bucks come in. You know, the the only bad thing about it is you got to get down and put your buck decoy back up when they when they slam it. <laughs> I've had them slam it. Well, I had one come into Iowa last last year. I got it on film, and Larry chewed my butt out because I didn't shoot the deer. I just didn't think I had the right angle, but I had a really nice, big, nice buck come in. Nice, mature five-year-old. And, uh, man, he went sideways and started going up and I had him right at the decoy and it's like, should I shoot him or should, I don't know if I got that. I just don't know if that shoulder's at the right angle. And so I just decided not to pick up my bow and keep filming. 
but um, yeah, I mean that that pure whitetail stuff with that Winsent product has really been working well for me over the last uh, few years. Hmm. That's uh, you know I've, I've always had a I put a, usually a cover not a cover uh, yeah a cover scent over a spray or a, a scent eliminator I, I sprayed with that. I used to use a, yeah. a stuff that James Valley gel scent. I used to, I've had great luck with that. I think the Wenzel's got me on that years ago. So I used James Valley and I used their Buckler and I always put it on the rear or put it on the nose. That was the two spots that you would have either they approach from. And I always had pretty yeah. good luck. And I'll tell you, it was by accident. I bought some of that uh, buck urine, buck bomb. It come in a spray. And uh, yeah, I yeah, so I yep. bought some of that, and, and I was out there to my lease, and I it was hunting. I had a, a tree stand hunting over a pit cornfield, and I had to decoy out, and I sprayed. I said, I'm going to try this. I sprayed that uh, buck urine all around the decoy. And of course, I got up in the tree and had a, uh, <laughs> a brain freeze because I looked down, and I couldn't even get a shot. There's, I put the decoy in the wrong spot. So I climbed down and moved it over another 10 yards and set it back up. And I had a, a probably a two, three-year-old buck that came in that afternoon or that evening. And when he hit that, he circled downwind of the of the decoy. But when he hit that spot where I sprayed the buck bomb into the corn, he started uh, pawing with his front feet, took his rack, tearing corn stalks up in the air. He was uh, bulldozing, you know, the, the, the dirt. And then uh, came over and kind of sniffed the decoy and walked away. But I started... Hmm, that seemed to work. So I started spraying that buck bomb on, the, you know, as well as, as on the decoy. And uh, I've always, like I said, had pretty good results, but we sure changed. We put a different product on and I'm telling you, they, they would not step out of the woods and there were some good bucks. And I bet you there was 12, 14 bucks that night would not step in, you know, and if, if you didn't, uh, have past experience of, of decoying, you'd had the thought right then that, man, this is terrible. I'll never decoy again. But it, it was how how important what you put on that decoy is doing. It could help you. It could be a right. hero or a zero. And it was definitely a zero that well, night that, for me. That, that's why I put bachelor group in there because it's it's not a, you know, it's it's just, it's, it's just a normal deer smell that they're used to smelling and, you know, deer are such social animals. They're very curious, but they're very social. They want to be around, a, you know, other deer. But, then, you know, you get into the rut cycle and you get a mature buck in there, you know, he's he's going to get very territorial. So, I, you know, I think that's why that bachelor group works really well. And then I don't put the estrus and stuff on the deer, on the buck decoy. I put it behind it um, because that's usually, tend, they usually tend to come in from the backside. You know, have you noticed that? They'll come uh. down one of the rear. You know, they get, you know, they want to smell those tarsal glands and, you know, uh, they want to see what's going on through their nose. So that's why I always put that stuff about three or four yards behind the, the buck decoy on the ground. And when they're in there smelling, investigating that, that usually gives me an opportunity to try to get a shot. I love my Dave Smith. I just wish we had another way to carry him that was, I mean, you talk about, I can't imagine you carrying your Dave Smith decoy, your blind or, or your camera gear. <laughs> Dude, I'm gonna call you sir next time I see you. No, that's that's Larry. I take mine out a couple of weeks before season and I hide it, and then I, uh, I let it. I let it. I, I, I take a. I don't use like a dirt spray or anything like that. I just use a regular field spray, uh, scent elimination spray, 
and I spray it down really well, and then I put, I, I brush it in, and I leave it there, and I let it get weathered, you know, so it smells like the woods. Um, and then when I get ready to hunt, then I'll just go pop it up and make sure I wear gloves so I'm not, I'm not cross-contaminating my scent on the decoy. And then, uh, then I'll put the, the uh, pure white tail in, inside of it, and then I'll, I'll put my one scent in it up. But, yeah, I, there's no way I can carry all that stuff. And uh, I just don't have enough, enough – uh, I don't have enough ways to carry all that stuff by myself. Well, Diane thinks I got her into hunting just so she can be give, keep me company during the hunt, but I needed another pack horse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you need an extra set of hands. That's right. The turkey, I don't, you know, you heard the talk around this year, and we definitely noticed it down here in southern Iowa that our turkey populations are way down. I've been saying this. I've seen the decline for the last three years. Last year wasn't as bad as this year, though. This year was, was um, normally we can sit on our deck and um, and hear gobbling in the morning and just pick which way we wanted to go. And we might have, during the whole season, only two, three times heard gobbling. And usually south of the lake, we can hear them uh, gobbling. And it's just, it was non-existence. And I would go scout. My easy scouting thing was, you know, I'd drive in the morning and know each day I'd pick a, a spot that I'm going to sit and wait for daylight with my coffee, and there's state land, private land, all that, and, you know, we listen to them gobble and just start picking, well, I'm going to think I'm going to hunt that one tomorrow. And I'm telling you, there was two or three mornings I never, I went out and never heard a gobble. And I don't know, you hear different talks of, you know, I do know that we do get some pressure here. And, you know, there's a couple things that, in my head, I know the guys who, who used to trap here, uh, pretty heavy when I moved here last couple of years they've quit trapping um, I don't know if the influx of possums and raccoons uh, have made a big difference or if the bob you know if there's more in, we, we do see a lot of bobcat around the house here um, I don't know you know or the owls we definitely that's an, they uh, they're definitely detriment on the pheasants and quail and and the rabbits here because I watch it but I don't know you know, if, if they're just quiet because of the predators, you know, I I don't know. What is your take on that? Uh, I think there's several things going on. My, and my, I'm not a biologist, George, and I don't play one on TV. I, I just, just my humble opinion of what I've seen over the last 20 years. Um, I just think, you know, farming practices has changed. So you got less fence rows and stuff that's going to affect, you know, habitat changes or, you know, if you don't have nesting cover, I think, you know, that can force turkeys to go look at another farm or another area where they, they know that they're going to have the cover to have a successful clutch. Trapping is definitely part of it. A lot of folks are just not trapping anymore. Furs aren't bringing in, in what they used to. And with the price of fuel and, and uh, the time in the field, and uh, it just doesn't come out to where it's equitable. So a lot of folks just aren't trapping. So I think, our, you know, the, the raccoons, the skunks, um, you know, you got other nest robbers, uh, snakes, squirrels, crows, you know, they're, they're just out of, out of balance. So, you know, that's going to hurt, you know, the poult survival. Um, you know, an average turkey has 10 to 12 eggs and a clutch. You know, they're lucky if that hen gets one poult to survive. And I mean, that's, that's not good. Then you got the raptors, like you were talking about. It's, you know, not only the owls, but we have, so, you can't go a quarter mile without seeing a red-tailed hawk. Hawks are, you know, they're going to, they're opportunistic hunters. If they see a poult out there, they're definitely going to grab them and eat them. So you just got so many different variables 
that's that's knocking down. Plus, I still think there's some kind of disease that is going around the, the Midwest regions because, I mean, it's not just Iowa. It's Missouri, Illinois, Kansas, Nebraska. Uh, there's so many bird populations that are down from where they were, you know, just 10 years ago. Um, and I, I honestly believe this year a lot of the people and a lot of the, the problems we were people were having and I got so many emails saying, Dan, what's going on? And just down here and we're seeing any birds. I think the birds were two or three weeks behind. Um, we had such the, the spring weather, I mean, was snowing or 30 mile an hour winds or 20, you know, 20, uh, 20 inch rains. I mean, I don't know if we had 20 inch rains, but, you know, but we just had a lot of rain and. You know, I think that put everything back a few weeks. And, you know, when you're when the turkeys are hinned up, first thing they do when they pitch down, they establish their pecking order and then they shut up. So I think a combination of all that stuff is why a lot of folks struggled this year. We still had good numbers in reporting, but um, I only shot one bird in Iowa. And I should have had two, George. I hit the rod with my blind. I, I looked over at the camera <laughs> and I, I went back and, I hit, I gave him a haircut on his back um, on my second bird in Iowa. But I went to Kansas three times this year, and I did not tag a bird. And if you would have told me that, uh, if you would have told me that in January, you're going to go to Kansas this year and not not tag a turkey, I would have laughed at you. Because, I mean, I, I've tagged two turkeys in Kansas for every year for the last 15 years. I mean, it was just, uh, I just could not get a Tom to come into the decoys. I, I heard, I had them around me. I had, I heard them and I hunted all day. I hunted from sunset, sunrise to sunset. And they just were so hand up. Um, they just would not come in. Now I had Jake's all over me and stuff like that, but you know, I want to bump a, a four or five year old bird. I want to see some spurts, some good spur length. And, you know, that's what, you know, when they're up there, firm my decoys and stuff i want to i want to have them put on a show um and uh, i just didn't have that opportunity in kansas you know and as you know how much i love turkey hunting it just kind of broke my heart a little bit what do you contribute to that i mean mature gobblers not wanting to step in i mean pretty much they had the they just had their they had so many hens i just don't think they were wanting to fight um i've never had them happen i've never had that happen like that before you know usually I go the first uh, April 7th, 8th, the first uh, couple days that opens up for regular hunting. And uh, usually I can get a, I can get both my birds in a day and a half or two days. And it just, uh, I couldn't, you know, the weather, part of one, one, one trip out there, we had those 20, 25 mile an hour winds. Um, and that's, you know, that's ridiculous trying to hunt in that, especially bow hunt. And, uh, you know, and, another, you know, George, if I was running and gunning, I would have I would have filled my tags, but you know I'm still, I'm self filming. So when I go set up in a spot, I try to get between where they're roosting and where they go feed. So I try to set up an area like that, and then I put my decoys out, and then I'm there all day. I just can't move, pack up and move because I got my blind, my chairs, I right. got my my uh, truck. Yeah, I got my pod, my decoys. I mean, I just can't pack all that stuff and, and move around real easy without, you know, bumping birds or having everything in the world, Steve, what you're doing. So, you know, but if I would have been just hunting by myself with a shotgun or just bow hunting by myself and, and had one decoy, I would have been able to kill them. I could have got up in front of them and they would have fed right to me and, and you know, they would have came in and probably thumped the, the Jake. But I just think everything was two or three weeks behind and I, I just didn't think they didn't have to fight to get the hens to, to breed. And I, I, think, I think that was a lot of it. 
you know, I think the weather was two weeks behind. I tell you something that's weird here that we noticed that, that if I did see a, a group of them show up at six or eight or ten, we used to have, you know we'd see quite a few twenty or thirty. But uh, if I did see a group and watch them, it was like Dan they would be there for two three days and then move out and be across the road in another spot. It's just I never yeah. seen them so mobile. Maybe you're right. They were just with hens and, and move. But usually I found when they were hinned up, and I've done this with Jason Pollock in New York and everything, you know, usually about 10, 1030, you just forget it, let them go. And then 10, 1030, you know, hit them hard and uh, catch them when the hens are going back to nest. And a lot of times you can pull them over. Yeah. But like you said, it, we, we started hunting out of pop-up blinds too. And when you're trying to film and it's easier with, with two of us to hide, um, it's just not that mobile to pick back up and, and come back without making any noise or, or just, you know, disturbing them. It's, it was a tough year. Yeah. I, it got so bad. I'd be, yeah. First time in my life, I was kind of disheartened. I felt that they were down so bad. We, you know, we could kill between her and I, we killed four of them. I looked at it and I said, man, I don't even have a heart. I want to shoot one, you know, I want to see them come back. And it, it's just been, I'd had, I was listening to Steve Ranilla yesterday on his meat eater podcast and they were talking about but they was down in new mexico someplace but the turkeys being down and, and pretty much throughout the the midwest and one of the the uh speakers was talking about he had uh someone from the nw a biologist from the nwtf uh you know they're doing their studies on the turkeys and so far their their evidence is you know there is some type of avian uh flu that must be going around that's going around with the birds but the turkeys don't seem to be quite as infected with this avian so far that their information. Who yeah, knows? I just like I said, I think it's a accumulation of everything we just talked about, you know. And um, I, I, I don't know. I see some states going to one turkey for the next year or two. I, I know, you know, uh, I brought that up to Missouri, and you know, the turkey biologist that I talked to in Missouri, um, actually, I talked to the deputy director down there. And they said, well, the nice thing about it, Dan, is you could, you know, if you feel that way or other hunters feel that way, they can self-regulate just by one tag. But I, I know Kansas and certain areas are going to one bird. Um, I know where I go to, to uh, where I go to hunt the uh, Triple H at Donovan's, where Donovan's going to go to one turkey next year just to help the, try to get the flocks to rebound a little bit. Um, but, you know, everybody, if you can, if you know, try to get out there and try to take a few coons and, uh, you know, some other, uh, fur, you know, fur bearers during the, their trapping season, if you can, if you can, because every time you do that, you do, you know, you do help bring a little more balance to your hunting areas. Um, and if, you know, if you got some buddies that trap, you know, help them out, help them out with some gas cards or whatever, you know, it, it's, it's only going to help your hunting later down the road. If you got people trapping your farm. Good point, Dan. Now you've done the white tail. We've talked about, uh, turkeys. And I, was, and I mentioned with Philip that uh, when we first stepped into the duck blind down there at George Washington, which Whistling Oaks down there in Arkansas, that first morning, of course, we had TJ and him, and they both were pulling out all their cameras. And I looked at them and, and said, any of y'all ever film waterfowl before? Nope. I just had a big <laughs> grin and a smile said, well, welcome to the show. <laughs> and I never forget when those wood ducks and everything come bombing through and the teal come through. you there, TJ, dang, I can't keep up with these things. I just started laughing. I said, ain't like turkey and deer, is it? Welcome to a new league, boy. This is, you joined the big leagues, but we were uh, talking about Philip, you know, 
I've here's a guy that's, that's shot so many Popignon Boone and Crockett 200 inch deer, and uh, I called in his first mallard, Drake mallard duck, and stood behind his shoulder, him using my shotgun, and reached up and killed his first Drake mallard, and he was whooping and hollering and. And it, it was so cool that here's a guy that's killed so much big game, was so giddy of shooting his first mallard duck. I thought that was really cool. So have are you a water follower at all? Uh, George, I've never been. I just, I just never, I'm usually in a tree, you know, and <laughs> so I just, you can't do it. You just don't have time to do everything. But I, I totally get the passion for waterfowling. I mean, that's, you know, the vocalization and the interaction with the birds when I'm turkey hunting. And I, I totally get why you guys are so passionate about ducks and geese. So when I, when I, when I get to the point where I'm not doing TV anymore and, um, I, you know, I have more time on my hands, I'll probably get out there and, you know, get into a duck blind with you or Dan brothers or somebody that, uh, just to get out there and have some fun. I, the thing about waterfall hunting that I really like is the camaraderie. Yeah, I think fun. that's uh, that's that's the biggest, you know, because you know when you're bow hunting, you're out there usually by yourself, so it's a very solitary thing. Um, and turkey hunting, you can, it's easier to get a buddy to come with you and have a little, have some little combo, you know, buddy time and you know see what's going on. But uh, waterfowl hunting, it's definitely more, it's more of a social thing. I mean, you can get out there and and uh, light them up and you know have a conversation in between when they're coming in. Well, you live so close to us. You don't have an excuse. You, I can give you a phone call. You can come down here. I'll put you in a blind out in the field north of us. You're going to sit there. My wife will be, is my, uh, she's my witness. She'll put you in a blind. And when those honkers start coming over our house, heading that way, and they start, you know, feet above you, wah, 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 and, the, and those wings, poop, 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 poop. I'm going to tell you what, your heart's going to pump. And you're right with, with waterfowl. My son once, uh, we were speaking at a wild game dinner, and he was mentioning, you know, I've had him in a deer blind. I was carrying him on my back um, so he wouldn't get wet in the weeds And when he was young. And, and he's, you know, he started deer hunting young. He said, I love deer hunting. I love the turkey hunting. But, but my biggest memories, you know, hunting is with my dad is waterfowl hunting, sitting in the field, being able to talk, drinking hot chocolate. And, you know, I'd always have him bring a buddy or two, and you'd find out who their friends were in school, if there was a girl they liked, you found out everything out in that goose field. And, you know, you could sit and talk, and then you almost always had action. And um, Oh, yeah. We'll have to do that one of these times. I'd be, I'd be fun to get out there and, and see those decoys spinning and watch them come in. I I, I know Philip and Larry and everybody, and, you know, Kent, you know, we both know Kent really well, user and, you know, I, I just, uh, you know, I know those guys are ate up with it, too. So I, I, I totally get it. You're scared that you're going to become a waterfowler. That's what you're scared of. I mean, we're going to have to put you on a legendary <laughs> gear call. <laughs> we're going to teach him how to, that, you know, that would be a cool thing. If I could teach Dan Young to run a goose call, I could teach anyone. <laughs> well, yeah, because I sound like Bigfoot when I'm throwing, when I'm blowing my turkey calls. So I can't even imagine what my geese calls are going to sound like. Well, I'll tell you, what's in the future for Dan Young and the Outdoor Call Radio? What's, what's in the respect the game? What can we see? Uh, what's going to be your schedule for the year? Uh, well, I got lucky and drew a Kansas tag, so I'm going to go down and chase the whitetail with, down at uh, Donovan's and, and see if I can get a show done down there. And then, uh, of course, I'm going to hunt here in Iowa, back in here at home. And I'm going to head up to Alberta, Canada uh, at the end of September and go on my very first moose hunt. 
So I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. I've always wanted to try to get a boost with my bow and, uh, finally, finally everything fell together for me. So that's, uh, that's my agenda for the, for this year anyway, hopefully that'll work. And, um, if I get a boost, man, you're going to hear about it because people are going to get, they'll be sick of me talking about it. Trust me. Well, I seen a picture of your elk on, on Facebook today and man, what a beautiful elk. And that had to be a, a rewarding spiritual moment for you, wasn't it? You know, George, I love elk hunting. I've been nine times and I've only, I've had two shots and I was lucky enough to take two elk. And I, uh, I, I love it, man. You don't always get an opportunity, but boy, there's just something special about being out there and hearing those cow calls that, meow, meow, you know, and they're up, they're up above you. And, and then you start hearing those, uh, those elk bugles and stuff. And man, that's, I, I wish everybody would just have the chance to go experience that once in their lifetime. Cause it's like turkey hunting on steroids, man. I mean, it's just, that's it's what amazing. I was saying. Yeah. Uh, that's why I tell people it's turkey hunting on steroids. First time I heard an elk bugle, I mean, the hair in the back of my neck. I mean, I said, this is, I was shaking, but laughing, saying this is the coolest thing I've ever done right here, without a doubt. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and you know, even when you go and you don't get an opportunity, I mean, we all love to eat, right? But just getting out there and being that close to them, is, it's pretty exciting. It, it, it was pretty special, and... Um, you know, that, that bull I shot two years ago in, in Colorado with, uh, Paul Biggs was with me and his brother Ty and Travis Crowley, uh, was, uh, helping me call and it, I, it wouldn't have happened without all those guys there helping me film it and Travis doing the calling and it just, uh, it was pretty special to take my best elk I've ever shot in my life. And I cried, man. I threw, when we got to him and I, uh. You know, he came, he came in bugling and screaming, and right after he got done bugling, I, I, I've always remembered that when they bugle, they, you know, when when they're done, they don't have any air. So I shot him right behind the shoulder, and he went about 100 yards, and we got him right there, and that's when the work started packing that thing out of there. But man, what a! I'll carry that with me the rest of my life. Absolutely, absolutely. How uh, high elevation were you? Probably about 98, 90, 90 feet. Yeah. I was the only thing I can remember is I went out there to Utah and in the it was over the counter tag, but we were going to public ground. As a real good friend of mine, he had a hot spot in, in in state land to hunt, and it was a long drive. But I was actually there. We had a, a I was supposed to do a, a youth duck hunt and take the owner of Sportsman's Warehouse, his grandchild, out and a bunch of young kids. On, on opening day of youth duck so i only got to go for three days up in the mountains but what i can remember is i did not do my homework i did not drink water i was so dehydrated we were sleeping at ten thousand feet i would wake up at night i had to sleep sitting up because i was gasping for air while they were snoring and i didn't urinate for three days and it was just like this is the, I, I thought elk hunting was the coolest thing, but the air that, you know, the with altitude uh, sickness was just, oh my gosh, I would have to have a week and, and, you know, I should have been drinking water, but man, it threw me for a loop. It's just, I think heaven, yeah, got- I think heaven would be 400 inch bulls on flat land. <laughs> well, you need to go to Arizona. <laughs> exactly. Well, up in Alberta, we we uh, did a podcast yesterday with one of our legendary uh, gear ambassadors, B. Latane, 
And I don't know if you've ever watched, but B, they got their little small group. They call slob mobs. But I met these guys uh, up there when they were doing Diane and I in the York didn't show up in Saskatchewan. These guys have some of the best hunting in that area. And the, the huge mule deer and the huge whitetails and, and the elk. And I mean, they hunt everything. I was, I was sitting there telling them, I said, dude, I'm in Iowa and I feel blessed because we got some good whitetails. But you live in an area has just good, it has amazing whitetails, amazing mule deer, amazing elk, amazing moose. It just, and then the most amazing waterfowl. And, uh, yeah, you know, I would love to, that'd be a dream. And Alberta, who is, who's your contact in Alberta? Uh, there's a guy named Ken McGill, uh, Canadian outfitting, uh, Canadian outfitters, I think his business, but he's one of my, just one of my friends on Facebook and he, uh, he got a hold of me. It was kind of funny. He just got a hold of me, and uh, we started talking. And then he goes, "You know what? I want you to come up here, and, and uh, I would like to invite you to come up here and go moose hunting." And uh, I said, "You're oh. kidding me!" And I said, "No." He goes, "No, I want you to come up and moose hunt with me." So uh, I got a couple buddies of mine that that's always wanted to go, and uh, we're, there's four of us going to meet up there and have a have a really good camp. So I, you know, like I said, it's it's always kind of neat how things just kind of fall together sometimes. But yeah. It's it's, uh, it's going to be a good experience, that's for sure, hopefully. Beautiful country, and, and uh, what a great opportunity. The door's open. That's probably another thing that's cool about what you do. And, and that's what I'm saying. All the years of doing shows and traveling across the country and stuff, uh, we've been very blessed to, to make some great acquaintances and some great friendships and having some opportunities, some great places to hunt. And it's just... Um, not enough time to go hunt all the places, but it, it is cool what you do. It gives you an opportunity. Well, Dan, I appreciate oh, you sharing your busy schedule with Diane and I and, and uh, getting to find out a little bit about you and, and our listeners get to hear what, you know, it's not an easy task. You guys think that uh, I would love to be in the hunting industry or I'd love to do what he does. And uh, sometimes when you walk in their shoes, it's it starts, it can be a chore. It's not always guns and roses you know what you look back and and there's something to be said about being your own boss there's something to be said about uh you know doing what you have a passion for and, and making a living i think that is the success in life it isn't always about how much money in the 401k it's about you being able to make a life and being happy and could be look back and and give back also to what you love to do so much and uh, i appreciate oh, you oh absolutely I appreciate you giving back today. And folks, if you like listening to this podcast, I hope you go and subscribe. You got the Outdoor Call Radio. You got the George Lynch Hunting Podcast. Just subscribe and and, um, let us know how you like it. I appreciate Dan this week. And if you want to check out uh, Legendary Gear, go to legendarygearusa.com. Legendarygearusa.com. And always remember, on Wednesday, you'll hear yours truly on the Outdoor Call Radio. If you want to listen to the Outdoor Call Radio, it's free on your device app store. You can check us, check me out on Wednesday doing waterfowl and, and whitetails and listen to Dan Young and his guests uh, for the rest of the week, all week long. The Outdoor Call Radio, free on your device app store. And uh, I'm George Lynch. I appreciate you all listening. And remember to hunt safe, hunt smart. May the good Lord be your guide. Well, I'll be out there rain shining all a part of the great design Bring it on, I can never get enough
Cause that's what legends are made of